By the way, before we go further, can we just get the pronunciation of the guy's name right? God. It's actually the weakened. Wait, you guys aren't ready for this. <laughs> I've been dealing with this all week. It's, no it's pun actually, intended. It's actually the weakened. The we- as in, you've been weakened. The weakened. You know, I'm weak. I have been weakened. Then he needs to know how to spell. Welcome to the B-Side. Scoop. Isaac. Jahan. Arthur. The music snobs. episode 23 of the music snobs podcast my name is arthur your lead voice and i am joined as always with scoop isaac and jahan and isaac and jahan are in london england together eyeball to eyeball nose to nose microphone we're to not, microphone we're not sitting that close <laughs> thigh to thigh cheek to cheek <laughs> Real talk though, John has been correcting my English the whole time here, trying to get me to pronounce things like they do over here, but I told him I'm not going back to Chicago talking like an Englishman. Hey dude, that might work though. You know that accent thing, you come back here. It's worked for me. <laughs> right, yeah, because you from here. <laughs> but I'm saying, no, when Jahan comes into Chicago, you know when he comes to the city, man. You're right, yeah, but I can't walk up in a barbershop talking. Oh, but you can walk up to, you know, you can walk into a club. I mean, Slick Rick did it. Look look where he is. Right. <laughs> yeah, look where he is. <laughs> Isaac's already met some women here, by the way. Oh, God. Because of his Isaac, accent you know, over there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's, 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 is that how you did it, Scoop? There you go, dog. That's how you get it in. All right. For this episode, our show is Parties, Pills, and Pain. Is the weekend the Brett Easton Ellis of music? Now, somebody, either Isaac... Somebody literary, Let, give give everyone an, uh, a, a background of who Brett Easton Ellis is. I think Isaac probably go further than I was. Uh, than I was, it's just he's he's the he's the author of the original Less Than Zero. So and American Psycho. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that's pretty much all I know about him too. Because I read, I think I think it was Less Than Zero. Because the other one, uh, what's the one about the uh, the serial killer? American Psycho. American Psycho. American Psycho. I didn't read that. I didn't read that. But Did you see the attraction? Film? American Psycho. Oh yeah, Christian Bale. Yeah. But Brett Easton Ellis, I know, pretty much symbolizes or represents that 1980s uh, cocaine-fueled New York and Los Angeles scene where it was like, uh, it was kind of like a mixture of not just pain, but almost um, excess, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, excess and existentialism. Exactly, exactly. And he, 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 as an author, and really, if you look at it, I think maybe the 80s were the last time an author, a writer, kind of symbolized the, you know, the, the zeitgeist or captured the zeitgeist mm-hmm. of a generation. Because I don't think that happened in the 90s or even in the 2000s. Um, but Brett Easton Ellis, from that cultural standpoint, you know, from uh, that you know, like uh, like Jahan just said, that ex- existentialism and that excess, he represented that. And that less than zero to me, I remember seeing that as a kid with Robert Downey Jr. when I think he had to be probably in his early 20s mm-hmm. at that point too. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal um, performance. Right, phenomenal performance. Um, and I think James Spader was in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Jamie Gertz. 
Oh, Jamie Gertz, yeah. Although Brett Easton Ellis says that he felt that the film let the book down because the storyline, the finished storyline of the film was significantly different to the book. What's interesting about Brett Easton Ellis is that whether it's his characters or whether it's the landscape or whether it's the plot and the events or the topics that concern the characters, they're often very vacuous. But many, many critics and, and you know, I suppose fans of Brett Easton Ellis's work they read a depth into that vacuum. So mm -hmm. despite it being empty subject matter, empty persona, empty events, that may be how we see The weekend. is it? I was about to ask that, is that what you're saying? Are you, are you putting The weekend in that context as far as like the emptiness? I, th I think that's a valid point because I could see both sides of that argument. On one hand, I could see a group of people saying, look, you know what he's saying is banal what he's saying is been said before it's the you know the empty prattlings of this generation on the other hand i could see another group of people saying look this is an artist who's finally putting the pain back in the r&b it's been missing for a long time putting the pain back in r&b speaking truthfully about his feelings and honestly about something uh the experiences he's going through so I could kind of see both sides of that argument. And I think that's maybe that is why, you know, that's a good comparison between him and, you know, uh, the, the Ellis novels. I get I get the shrug life. I get I get the I'm starting to make success, but eh, it wasn't necessarily what I was in for. It's not what I was expecting it to the be. Angst. You get the angst. He sold out two nights at the Chicago theater. Kissland either just came out or was about to come out. But this dude off of what was essentially a mixtape wicked games was big here though three mixtapes i wasn't expecting two sold sold out nights at, at the chicago theater and i don't have a problem with the weekend i mean it's just that every song on kissland sounds the same i mean like literally <laughs> it sounds the same well, well let's not in, in terms of the success that he's seeing let's not forget that those mixtapes those three mixtapes were downloaded eight million times i get that i mean i get i get how justin bieber got on you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I I get that. I get how Lily Allen got on that same kind of way, that same kind of avenue, and I'm 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 cool with that. You know, but what what I don't get is how some writers, specifically an article that I saw in October in uh, Consequence of Sound, where the Weekend and Drake, the headline was uh, to the effect of the Drake and the Weekend uh, a vie for Marvin Gaye's crown. Yeah, I read like they're trying to craft them in the weekend particularly because he's he's the singer even though I, I drake kind of moonlights like that but right. i'm saying craft them into this into this mold of marvin gay well, arthur let's let's be i understand uh, he's fair getting, though his because that, out there, that, but come on man i read that same article and that that writer basically put the premise out there but then he spent the rest of the article saying why both of these artists particularly jake or jake drake falls short of achieving that because it was drake who said told another reporter that he wants to be marvin Gaye one day you know uh, that's one of his goals but the the writer that article you're talking about arthur remember the writer who you know i forgot the guy's name but he spent the rest of the article basically debunking that you know and he, he he spoke some truths about look especially in the weekend's music he is doing the service of being a true artist and being honest and raw even if we don't agree with some of the things he's saying uh, but he did, you know, and I'm, you know, if anybody on the show is going to, you know, probably snap off about that comparison and probably be me. But I have to give uh, the weekend credit where credit is due. And I, I agree with you. A lot of his he, he's 
he's really catapulted to fame because he's captured a mood and that's why you know especially uh right you know the last album which is the first you know label re- major label release is uh kiss land i like the album um i like it a lot but it does sound you know like when i emailed you or text you about it, i said look this is something you should listen to but mm-hmm. at the same time i'm gonna tell you straight up a lot of these songs sound alike it's the same mood from it's the exact same thing play right? until the minute that the album ends but I, you know, as far as um, this landscape of R&B goes, that album, I hold Kissland higher than I hold, uh, 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 not Channel Orange, um, yeah, Channel Orange, because I feel that it it reaches for an artistic level that I don't think Frank Ocean even met on his second album. Um, but that article you're talking about, Arthur, that, that let's, let's be fair, that writer did spend the majority of that article debunking that statement by Drake. Even, you know, if, if uh, Drake said, look, I want to be, uh, Marvin Gaye etc I don't think there's anything wrong with aspiring I think part of the problem nowadays with modern music is that artists don't well firstly they don't have any awareness of the past uh, and certainly any sort of depth of awareness of the past so for you know Drake to choose Marvin Gaye he's clearly choosing him because he feels that he relates to either content or an approach that Marvin Gaye has now whether he falls dramatically short or not in our eyes I still give the brother props for like trying it, like saying, this is what I want to aspire to be. Uh, and I don't think there's a problem with that. And I mean, Michelle and Degocello, and I know what you're going to say now that I say that, but Michelle and Degocello, she once said, part of the problem is nobody is trying to be Miles Davis. Right. I'm trying to be Miles Davis. Now, I know what you're going to say, Arthur, but she's put that work in. You know, by the time she said that, she'd already had three albums. She'd already you know, created arguably three masterpieces. Even before she recorded a note, she'd already mastered an instrument. She'd already mastered the bass, knew how to record, etc. Was a dope, dope performer, knew how to lead a band. So I know it's I know it's a different scenario, but still, I think that music can't get out of the doldrums without that reach, without trying to aspire to be something else. But I think something has to be behind it. And I think in the context of maybe Michelle and Diego Cello, and even like a Kanye who makes some statements that you know he wants to be bigger than jesus you know i, I but i you know i, I think I mean, you know, it also but i think I said, it also you depends. know maybe that's a reach too far no right right but what i'm saying is that i think somebody seen, I, th- but, I think you know. i think in the situation with drake and you know i think we're dealing with popularity when we're dealing with drake i don't know if we're i, I, I don't know I, I still don't get why how he's held with such high esteem as a lyricist. I still don't get well, that. Well, I think it's because there's a vacuum. Right. But and he, I think that's what The weekend is feeling. But here he, 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 he are what I'm saying is that I, I don't have a problem and I don't think there should be a problem with somebody like Michelle and Diego Cello saying that because you see the talent that she has the ability to try to be in what she does, the next Miles Davis. It's there for her to be there. I don't see the talent in Drake where he can, you know, where, where I should accept I don't want to say he's aligning himself, but aspiring to be oh. the next Marvin Gaye. I, I well, don't, I don't about, see. How? I don't see that. I can see it in Michelle. I can maybe even see it in Kanye if he said, "I want to be the next Miles Davis." Just from an avant-garde standpoint. Okay. I think a lot of it has to do with who's actually saying it. Yeah, and 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 who's and who's hearing it, and who's hearing it, right? Because you know, to your ears, Drake, you know, falls short of the lyricist category. Let's let's flip it a little. Let's give you a different example. What about Miles Davis? Later on in his career, he, you know, he didn't say this, but he he basically said things that could be interpreted as, I want to be the next Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Right? He mm-hmm. said things that could be interpreted, ironically, as, 
I want to be the next Herbie Hancock because, you know, he recorded on the corner basically to appeal to young black kids in the discos or in the dances who 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 would who dance to headhunters who dance to chameleon right. right and he wanted that he wanted that attention now it could be that people from the rock area you know could have said yeah you know you ain't no rock musician you ain't no festivalized i think we need to get in the context we're talking about these comments i read something on the weekend i forgot where i read it at uh but a writer actually said that he was the most musically talented person to come along since Michael Jackson. Well, you should, yeah. Whoever said that should got their pen taken. That was Bill Bill Norris, was it, of MTV? He yeah, said Yeah, I can't remember yeah, who yeah, said yeah, it, but yeah. yeah. Was he fired? Norris? At, at <laughs> the, <laughs> now, he's suspect. But here's the thing, but, but listen, what I'm saying, I think the crust of what we're talking about is these, yeah, the fact that we live in a generation and a time where everything has to be grandiose. Every association has to be almost over the top in order to find an association or find a placement for artists. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, I, so it's, it's not just Drake saying, you know, he might want to be the next Marvin Gaye. It's outsiders even saying that, you know, oh, this person is the next so-and-so. John Legend is the next Stevie Wonder. You know, that's it's always like, been the case, see, though, hasn't it? It's really, hold up, though, hold we're up, living in that time. Mm-hmm. You know, so at some point, like you said, we have to push back at that. You know, we this is one of those shows that are going to push back on that. It's nothing wrong with, like John said, somebody aspiring to be something. But... Like you said, put in the work, but also you have to publicly document such a high aspiration. But it seems like it's only black artists that need to do that. Because Lord, frankly, I like it too, but her album, every song sounds the same. So I think she's she's this 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 vacuum that, that the weekend is coming to fill. She's trying to fill that too from the You're right, but it's a bigger picture and I from a cultural standpoint, I think it may be related to us because I see too much in sports. And Isaac can say the same thing. There's been the next Michael Jordan. It, it, how did you leapfrog past Magic Johnson and Oscar? You know, how did every all of a sudden the next person always get to Jordan? We're yeah, so grandiose. I'm with you. I'm with you on it 100% actually, what you're saying. Right. A lot of journalists, we've discussed it before, lazy writers. And they don't want to do the work that would bring the audience or bring the reader towards what they're trying to explain they don't want to do the work to help that reader understand it through the lens that they see it they try to go and meet the reader they try to contextualize it with very very obvious milestones to say here you go you know here's who it is now i don't have to explain who eddie kendricks is i can you know you you know who marvin gay is so i can just say marvin gay now i don't have to explain all that Let's let's take a step back though, and and this may be the only person in the room who who really likes Drake's last album, and I didn't particularly like the albums that preceded this, but his uh, latest album, uh, nothing was the same. I really like this album, and I agree with everything Jahan said. I have no problem with somebody in, of Drake's you know uh, level of success saying, "Look, I want to be Marvin Gaye." Do I think he'll ever reach that? No, I don't feel that. I don't think he'll ever reach that. that what do you that think, Drake? meant or means when he says I want to be you know Marvin Gaye what do you think he means by that I think he says and I wish I had the lyric in front of me but he says in one of his songs that he's not trying to be you know the next he, he addresses it he's not trying to be compared to and I don't think he he didn't name some people but I, I think he was saying I don't want to be compared to my contemporaries I want to strive to be something even bigger than that 
And I respect that. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know what I'm saying? Even I if I that. don't like some of his songs. Go ahead. Okay, no, I'm saying, but do you think it's in a musical context, in a fame context, in a mm-hmm. what context no, I think do you think musical. he means that in? Respect, credibility. I think it's in a musical context. Okay. I think it's in a musical and an artistic concept. I think the brother may have done his research. He may know, you know, who Marvin was as an artist, not just as a famous singer. Mm-hmm. He may know Marvin's philosophy. He may have read Divided mm-hmm. Soul. You know what I'm saying? He may understand what it means to be an artist of that stature. And he may be reaching okay. for that. And like Jahan said, I applaud it. Even if I feel like, okay, a lot of his music is, is popcorn whack. You know what I'm saying? This last album... I really like this last album, and not every song, but most of this music I really appreciate. Okay, now let me ask. And let me ask you this: Can go ahead. If it's cool for Drake to make that aspiration, statement. that statement, thank you. Okay. How would you feel if The Weeknd said it? I would feel the same way. I would feel the same way, and here's and here's the point I was trying to get to. I feel like there's two things going on right now within our culture, and I think. Uh, Arthur hit the nail on the head when he said it's even more specific to black culture and black music and even, you know, athleticism, like you said, scoops when it comes to sports. We're either, you know, it's like one thing, we're not giving artists enough time to mature. When they come out, they gotta be hits or it's a it's, yeah, see, it's, I agree you know, it's done and over. There's no that, yeah. there's no gestation period. The other thing is that other artists are not getting pushed hard enough. The weekend to me has nailed the mood that he established on House of Balloons. You know, he established it on House of Balloons, carried it through those uh, last two mixtapes, and then it's kind of taken a little bit higher on Kiss Land, but it's basically the same mood. He's already killed that. He's captured it cool. The question for me is that, is The Weeknd going to challenge himself enough to step it up? I think Drake has. Drake is continuing to challenge himself. He's not sticking with the same things. He's doing something different. The question with The Weeknd is, is he going to challenge himself? And I really think he needs to work with different producers. I think he needs to work with different lyricists. I think he needs to get out of this um, this this dark type of place he's in and take that pain and take those questions he has, take this um, ideology he's, he's trying to explore and really push himself to say, okay, can I take this even to another place or can I do this with it or that with it? He's already less than zero. He's already Brett Easton Ellis. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, what's he going to do next? What's, what's, what's the next challenge for but, you? You know what? I... I see where you're coming from on a lot of that. And when when I was doing research for the show beforehand and when I was listening to his music, I actually quite liked House of Balloons. I mean, I, I really liked House of Balloons. Uh, I think everything else started to merge into to one song. And that's not actually a bad thing because when we're talking about Brett Easton Ellis and capturing Zeitgeist, I think, and, we, and we've used the word landscape a couple of times here, I think that The weekend does really capture at least what I perceive to be the landscape for the audience that he's singing to and and, and, and very much so in a sort of like a, a tangerine dream or a Jean-Michel Jarre type of way where it's it's almost like the soundtrack to some mid-80s Michael Mann movie or you know his music wouldn't to me his music wouldn't be out of place in in an inner miami vice mm-hmm. you know? exactly. and, and, it, and, and there's something very very special Absolutely. about that very special about that but again what are you going to do now and that's why i say we don't give artists enough time to mature which i think the weekend needs to do is to mature but at the same time artists themselves by and large aren't pushing themselves so i hope that he gets pushed before we flip on to the next topic Brett Easton Ellis is often thought to be a satirist as well. Like satire 
is a very very important uh, weapon in his arsenal it does does the weakened have any no satirical no content in no. his material no not no <laughs> you know what i'm gonna say no but now that you said that i'm gonna go back and listen with that in mind and, and really really look into that i was i would agree with scoop off the bat i would say no but i'm gonna have to go back and listen because um, it may be right. I'm gonna yeah, say I mean, yeah, that's just that may to be, be a part of it. Yeah, right. At least, you, you, at know least. You, mean, right? you know what you mean. Do you have any? Do you have any lyrics to back that up? <laughs> Nothing to back it up. Just, just to be different. Okay. It, you know, it, it may be that it's also satire as he understands it to be. It doesn't necessarily have to be biting, but yeah. it may be. I mean, we're talking about him, so yeah. Okay, let's do a what if. In 1989, Public Enemy was one of the biggest raps, if not the biggest rap act in the world. They had a, a heavy bit of controversy um, when Chuck D fired the Minister of Information of Public Enemy, Professor Grift, from the group based on some statements that Griff had made uh, the previous spring that were published in the Washington Times uh, by the writer David Mills that were uh, taken as, branded as anti-Semitic remarks. They're responsible for all the wickedness going around the world. That was one of them. Right. Yes. How could they mis how could they misinterpret that? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> now Griff said they took him out of context because he had said something before that that just negated that whole statement. <laughs> <laughs> so Chuck took a lot of heat for that move. Uh, a lot of people felt that he put Griff out there, that he sold him out, that Chuck D contradicted himself and not stood behind Griff and supported him. Um, through the, 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 the backlash that Griff was getting, uh, particularly from the ADL? Nah, particularly from Rick Rubin and Leo Korn. Oh. Yeah, forget about that. Bro. I did. Right, right. See, all that outside stuff was for play. The real problem was internal. Rick was not happy with it, and Leo Korn, who was the president, I think, of Def Jam at the time, he wasn't Rick, happy. Rick had just left, left. I think, and okay. Leo took his place. Yeah. And Rick was Rick, yeah. Rick was instrumental in getting public enemy yeah. to Def Jam. Yeah, yeah. So there was some, yeah. So it wasn't more about the ADL. You know, in the public stuff. I think though, Scoop. I think had had Griff. Not to interrupt Arthur. Actually, asked, asking the question, but had Griff stayed, the ADL would have gotten heavily involved. That's true. Too. Well, the ADL and the JDL. So look. So what if what if Chuck D didn't fire Griff? How what would the outcome and, be? And the question is because Scoop, you you know, during that time period, remember there was so much you know different stories coming out. Yes. It was like, did he fire? Did he fire Griff? Because at one point it was like Griff quit. Well, didn't didn't he didn't he fire him? Then he quit. Then the group disbanded. He disbanded. <laughs> yeah, my man quit. And then they got reformed. He quit right. after he got fired. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like Craig on Friday. Well, right. you know, I mean, the, the confusion just from the consumer facing side of it was that Griff was in the Do the Right Thing video that was in summer '89. Griff was out of Public Enemy, but then Griff showed up um, on uh, Fear of a Black Planet, the follow up in the summer fall of 1990. Right. Well, a lot of yeah, because the recorded, statement was you know, made right. a year before it was actually released. I right. think, right? It was. It was. I yeah. thought it was at least six months or something like that. Statements were made in the interview. But he made. was in the group photo, right? So he, you could have changed that. You could have took another picture, mm-hmm. even if the material was recorded beforehand. Mm-hmm. So it confused but a lot of people let's, let's, I mean, and made Chuck out look like look to be a, a you know well, uh, inconsistent at best. In in reliving that situation, just in my mind, you know, the one thing we have to keep in mind is, is, is the conflict of the leader of the group, and that's Chuck. Chuck was in a situation where he has to ask himself, what's the right thing to do? How do I actually do the right thing? No pun intended, but how do I do the right thing? This is my guy. 
he said some stuff that basically I'm not going to say I agree with, but this is still my guy. I don't agree with everything he said. Now, on the other hand, like I said, this is where the internal thing comes in. You're still cool with Rick Rubin. You're still cool with Leo Cohen. They're part of the reason. It's like a team. Because the big thing about Public Enemy that they had a benefit of that not too many artists had, and I'm talking about the X-Clans and the Parises, all the other quote-unquote black nationalist groups, they didn't have Def Jam. So the strength of Public Enemy not only was Chuck saying, but they had an outlet. They had a record label that basically was in a position to push them further than being just an independent group. Do you do you dump on that? You know what I'm saying? Because now, when you got one side, you tell them, look, man, we can't have this. And the other side, this is your boy, but I don't necessarily agree with him. Chuck had to look at the big picture. And you're looking at a guy who's just an artist. Now he's at the center of the storm that has the decision making. Now you have the outside world looking at him like, is he going to turn his back on his boy? Because if he turns his back on his boy, that's going to look like he's turning his back on the whole black community. Or is he going to ride with these white boys? That's a lot to ask a cat in the, you know, and scoop to back you to back you up on that. This is not just any group. You know what I'm exactly. saying? This ain't digital underground exactly. or even even a, a tribe. This is the most politically you know outside of maybe BDP. This is the most politically politically charged group you know in hip hop at the time. Uh, who was caught in this this kind con- you know? And they got members of the Nation of Islam you know all throughout mm-hmm. their group. Right. You know what I'm saying? So here he is caught between a rock and mm-hmm. a politically correct horror place. It was to me, it was an impossible situation. But for me to answer the question, what if, you know, Chuck wouldn't have fired Griff at that point in time? One of the greatest songs ever does not get written. And that's Welcome, Welcome to the Terror. Thank you. Arthur. And I was talking Chuck about detailed, that. Yeah, Chuck detailed in one interview, I think it was in Rolling Stone, where he talked about he was riding around in his truck with all this stuff on his mind, you know, all this controversy, all this. And he just pulled over and wrote that song. Yep. You know, he was riding around by himself, you know, at night and just. You know, troubled and just pulled over and wrote that line. You know, I got so much trouble on my mind. And from a you know from a, a music snob standpoint, despite all the other ramifications, that would have been the tragedy for me. You know that that song does not get written without all this other drama. I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here the drama get wicked. The crew to you to push the back the black attack. So I sat and jab and slap the mac. Same thing that you took the words out of my mouth. With. I, that was the answer to my question. We never see Chuck get angry, and I was—that's I was, what I was gonna say. If, if, if he didn't have to fire Griff, and that never happened, we wouldn't. We would have never seen Chuck angry at the establishment. And you know that, what I'm saying? Because he would have like won anger. in his mind. Like, look, I'm choosing my boy over this, and he everybody would have been mad at the establishment. But it's and, not the and, first time that Chuck got. I, I, I hear you on the establishment. It's not the first time Chuck got mad. Chuck got no, mad. No, that's not the dude, first time he got mad. High. But dude, that's yeah, but not, the first no, 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 time. I'm, I mean, I'm not no, no. disagreeing with you, but I'm saying it's, this isn't. This not isn't that, like. Yeah, not that type of anger. This is a different type of anger. Yeah, not that type it's of anger. This is personal. This is personal. Right. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. And that leads to my saying that Welcome to the Terrible would have never gotten rid. Never. And, and, and like, wrote, I, I agree with that. One of the greatest pieces of art, you know, is that record. You know, Chuck Chuck D controlled anger, and he says it. What do you say? Um, I, I can't remember the lyric. 
you know, when I get mad, I put it down the pad. Down give you something pad. that you never give had. Yep. That you never had. That this is, you know, this, this song it. is if if you look at uh, Black Steel and the Hour of Chaos, you know, or some of the other, you know, incredibly, you know, iconic, brilliant music that they did. That captured, you know, something larger than themselves. It was about a generation. It was about the history of a people in, in, in America. It was about all these huge things. But like you just said, this song was personal. You know what I'm saying? And it was like he just unleashed. I just I've never I remember hearing that for the first time and realizing even at that age, I don't know how, how young I was, but realizing I had never heard anything like that before in my life. Yep. And then of course the bomb squad you know with the which which you know that noise that they put put behind it but it still had you kind of bobbing your head that song was like the ultimate like just unleashing someone's soul on mm. vinyl that's his i don't excuse the language that's his i don't give a fuck moment seriously it is it, it, tell the rab get off the rag you know what i'm saying he was like crucifixion ain't no fiction so thank called you, chosen he, so frozen apologies made to whoever pleases still they got me like jesus still they got thank me you. like jesus anger we that was you no. Know, that was that was Chuck's genius. You yep, know, he was it. he approved it in other songs. But if I had to like present a song to prove his genius, it was that song. Yeah. Now, was Griff wrong? No. Did Griff get fired because what he said was wrong? No. Or did he get fired because of what he's the way no, that no, no, he no. said it? Griff got fired Before, because he got, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Before anybody answers, we don't have to fire anybody on the show. <laughs> 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 Griff got fired because those statements were not new. He had made those statements before. And Chuck told him, look, you got to cool that out. So really, if you really want to be truthful, he got fired for insubordination. Mm -hmm. He had made those comments before, so they had had those conversations about, look, that's good, but you got to chill on that. And Griff being Griff did not chill on that. So when they resurface, it's like, yo, dude, we can't, you know, so, no, Griff wasn't wrong in what he said because that was his belief and a lot of the people in the group stood behind that. But for me, his, uh, understanding his, his, how it went down, it wasn't about him right or wrong. He was wrong because from what I understand, he was, uh, they already had a discussion that we got to leave that one alone. Mm -hmm. And still he went on his own, quote unquote, tangent. So what do you think would have happened if, if, if Chuck didn't fire him? That's a good question. That's See, a good question. What I, what I think, Griff would have been in a situation of where there would have been violent altercations toward him. That's true. I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. I've always said that Flav, Flav, Chuck owes Flav everything for him not getting shot. Because you take Flavor out of that and there's no comic relief in Chuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden everything he says gets taken seriously and in America, he becomes his own logo. He's mm -hmm. the brother in his own logo without Flav. Do you think it, it extracted some of the potency of Public Enemy? I think when it happened, I remember because I remember when the news hit, it did feel kind of like Chuck had been like, you know, put in his place. You know, I like, know you can't have this dude in your group. Mm -hmm. um, but when Welcome to the Terror Don't Drop, it was like, right. nah. Nah. Public Enemy, they came back harder than ever, and yeah, then you did. had brothers going to work it out with that Prince guitarist. You know, it was like by the time it, I get to Arizona was, in the video, right? Oh yeah, now that you want to talk about controversy, that's what I'm saying. So now I, don't, I think in the moment, as Isaac's 200 right in the moment, yes, but after that, he regained, if you want to say, credibility. You know, he mm -hmm. regained the status of credibility real quick from Terradome to brothers, and like I said, the video, the video to by the time I get to Arizona, we actually killing governors, and it was come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant, and then and, and we not even yeah we not even gonna get to what they did with Ice Cube, 
Mm-hmm. Bomb Squad was solid. They were, you know, they got past that. And to me, it's something we've always been consistent with on this show. I think it's saying that whatever situation you're in, your art can get you out of it, which is great. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the situation public enemy is a class example. Like, you know what? You could be looked at one way, and it may not be the right light that the, that the media or the country or society is putting you in. But if you want to be looked at a certain way, your art can carry you back to that. Great art can carry you back to that. Okay, next topic. Synchronicity. With the unique recipe of white reggae are the police. The only real example of black and white music styles synchronized without any kind of dilution. For those that don't know, I don't think anybody listening to this show would not know. The Police was a band fronted by Sting that was popular from 1977 through 1984 when they disbanded. And then Sting went on to do his lucrative career that stopped as soon as he did Nothing Like the Sun. Because everything after Nothing Like the Sun can just get thrown out of this window. What? Yes. End of show. Cut. Rap. Let's go home. Soul Cages. Garbage. Brand new day. Garbage. Oh my goodness. Whackness. Scoop whackness. If you listen, bro, it's going to be a condensate moment again. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, go ahead. No, we're good. Go ahead. I'm saying nothing. Okay, okay. I'm standing down. That's later. That's later. So, uh, the police. See, what I've been able to do is I've been able to separate Sting's music from his police music. I can I can do the same thing. Right. So I'm not I'm not I'm not laying it next I, to I, the no, stuff no, no. he's done with thing. all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can do the well, same I think thing. what Arthur and I can't do this is, is not separate. a David Byrne talking head situation. Right. But but right. but but I think what Arthur and I can't do is separate um Sting up to and including nothing like the sun and Sting post nothing like the sun. I think we can't we we have we have trouble sort of understanding that the same man yeah, it's like he turned into Elton John greatness yeah he did I get that. Arthur Arthur I thought you told me you liked elements of soul cages Arthur I'm about to write you off be careful <laughs> I thought you told because you sent me I you you sent me soul cages and told me to but listen he might, to he might have sent you like listen to this wow you gotta I can't believe yeah this you guy gotta pull that email you gotta pull that email I look I can see where y'all going look I the only thing I can not a sting topic I'll say no no we will we, we, finish it I'll say this I'm with you all with the exception of Sacred Love. That's it. So the police, a group that was miscategorized as New Wave, primarily be, and punk, but they got lumped in a new wave because they weren't angry. Mm-hmm. 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 They did that in London. That's, those, that's the London press that did that to them. Yeah. And, and also, also the three-man, you know, the three-man format. It was quite- we had Sting on bass and lead vocals, primary songwriter. We had Stuart Copeland, a beast drummer. That's it. And it was really Stuart Copeland's group. That's what you know. What I was going to correct People you. Don't but realize I that thank Stuart you. Copeland talked thank Sting into the police. Thank you, thank you. Because when you said Stuart Sting was the leader, I was about to say, but I will let you do your thing. I'm like, no, nah, that's really Stuart's it's group. Stuart's group. And Always you had, had Andy been. Summers and, on guitar, and that's why they broke up. Th- yeah, that's his, why, his brother yeah. was the manager. Money man. Yes, Miles Copeland, who uh, was the manager, uh, ran IRS Records, and Andy Summers on guitar, who was who was like the third member of Guy. <laughs> right who actually uh, actually and he replaced he was on he was on guitar right yeah mm-hmm. and he replaced it because there was another guy who was there in the beginning of the group and summers replaced him right Andy summers was at, the the request star of, of the at the request of sting right mm-hmm. exactly now the the sound which was and this is so bizarre too the sound was called white reggae which it really wasn't, which it really, it really wasn't. wasn't it was sky it was, it was sky 
Thank you. That's all it was. It was Sky. It was Sky. And nobody knew what it was. It was like, you know, grunge before grunge. It was like, they don't, we don't know how to title it, so they called it White Reggae, when really was, they created Sky Music. Which came from Jamaica. Yeah, it is. With Rocksteady. There you go. And the police were able to take that sound, but they did craft it into a unique fusion kind of way mm. it was you know it was like they were a, they were they were like a mass market weather report but they had a voice that was different outside of weather report because you didn't have a lead singer in there and sting was so unique in what he was singing yeah that, that kind of separated it and still to this day you really don't have a cat that sounds like him he's, he's very much to me like a plant in zeppelin mm-hmm. the voice is so unique yeah i agree and mm-hmm. it fits exactly with what they were trying to do There are classes of what happens uh, when a record industry tries to label a group as opposed to just letting them be. Because they can't figure out. They can't figure they out can't, what they, they don't are. know what box to put exactly. them in. And also, also they didn't, the police didn't have a that guy. You know, Weather Report had a that, well, Weather Report had like three that guys. You know, it had Jacko, Zawinul, mm-hmm. and Shorter. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. these are like arguably the greatest on their particular instruments. I don't think the Sting quite had that kind of level of virtuosity in musicianship. And I think with Rutherford, you knew what you were getting. It was a different type of jazz, but you knew it was still, yeah. you know, for the most part, it was still jazz music. There wasn't a problem categorizing that. I think with the police, they really, they, they had no idea what to do with them as far as categories are concerned. And at the time, the music industry was strictly about categorizing. Do you think that that was because the sound I'm talking about and the categorization was because the, because the police was were able to bring the rock element into ska? Yeah, I th- exactly. Yeah, I agree. I agree, I yeah, I think so. But also, you have to end the fact, they didn't know, you still can't tell me from the police in their heyday who their audience was. You talk about a group with a diverse audience. Name, you do a rock saying, you know, which mm-hmm. is, you know, kind of like all over the place. Which is fine, but then you get Eddie Murphy singing it right in a movie, hours. and all of a sudden, that really introduced a black audience to like, oh, we mm-hmm. weren't hip to Roxanne because we were always listening to Voices inside our head. Right, that was the black song. White folks weren't listening to Voices. That was like a reggae track that was on R and B radio all over the country, mm-hmm. and that introduced. So then you throw in everything else from, you know, synchronicity to uh, every breath I take, which is almost a pop Walking song to a whole nother audience. Yeah, their audiences. And see, an unfortunate thing too is that a, a lot of pop people that are familiar with the police are familiar with their surface radio friendly songs. Right. Everything little thing she does is magic. Do 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 da da da. But when you just go, you don't have to go that further deep. You don't. Voices inside my head. Yeah. Uh, driven to tears. Driven. Yeah. The world is running down. Mm-hmm. Um, invisible sun. Mm-hmm. And Thank then you, you go deep and layer and layer and layer. But it's all. A, it, it is, in fact, a unique sound, and I it do is. believe that it's a pure sound. Okay, well, did the police bring a rock element into Scott, or was it that they were able to take reggae into the rock element? Mm. I think, you know, and this to answer Scoop's question, because I agree with what Scoop said about no one really knew what to do with them at the time. To me, a lot of groups who really are in love with a certain form of music that doesn't necessarily fit their aesthetic they fall into that trap of always doing a homage to that music. 
And so the sound, all their songs kind of sound like a tribute to a certain form of music. I never got the sense from the police that they were paying tribute all the time to uh, reggae. True. It sounds like they fit into, it felt like they fit into that mold of reggae in a very authentic way. I think especially on a, a, a Regatta de Blanc, which I think is their, the best album. Mm-hmm. To me, they kind of just, they, they didn't pay homage to it as much as they spoke through it. It was a part of them, a genuine, authentic part of them. Other groups who have taken, you know, whether it be R&B, soul, whether it be reggae, whether it be whatever, that doesn't necessarily reflect, you would never, you know, guess that's who they are. They almost sound like they're paying homage to it or they're using it to a certain extent. The police never felt like that to me. Let me ask you this, Jahani, as growing up, um, the familiarity that you had with the police, the the popularity in England. Yeah, I mean, so you're asking, you know, my my recollection of Mm-hmm. But like on the ground in London, it's difficult for me to answer that question because of my age. When they came out, Seven, it was seventy-eight. Yeah, I, I was at that time. Music wasn't really on TV that much, and I didn't know what a radio was at that point, or you know, or anything. I just knew that it was something in my mum's car. But um, I wasn't I wasn't really directly exposed to their stuff to the point where I could choose to listen to it. My earliest memory of them, I forget what track it was, but it was a video where they're dance I don't know they're in they're in the desert or something and I was in my uncle's flat so I sat and listened to the song I liked the song he gave me some story about how they were the music industry's police and if anybody committed a crime in the music industry that they, <laughs> oh, would, wow. they would solve it <laughs> wow. I believe that at the time I believed that why wouldn't I I was like you know two years old whatever it was but but you know it's um, yeah that, that that was my exposure and, and even even when they disbanded it was too early for me to really be aware of it uh, or or or, or know about it so I I really learned about them retrospectively once I really got into Sting you know Dreaming the Blue Turtles Nothing Like the Sun both of which hit me kind of right between the eyes mm. um, then I went back and thought well hang on I better check out I better check out the police mm. I can tell you this though, to answer your question I really think that if you had to put them in that either reggae or rock box to me it's somewhere in the middle but I think they could be called it's gonna sound crazy a pop reggae group with rock sensibilities. Because mm. if you look at the behavior of them, they really Very looked pop. at themselves as a rock band. Mm-hmm. They acted like a true-to-the-core rock and roll band. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They wanted that persona to be put out there where they'll tear up the instruments, we'll tear up your hotel room, you know, we'll, you know we're, we're Aerosmith. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They, they wanted, that's how they behaved. That wasn't the music they were doing, but that's how they behaved. I think the music they were doing was if if reggae was to find a pop audience that was not black. It's like I, I get that, I and get I, that. I think because they were as big a band as Van Halen was. Exactly, they were. But they never, they never seemed, and even now, retrospectively, when we listen to it years later, they never seemed inauthentic. No, because they're all, for the most part, especially with Stewart and Sting. They were true musicians. They were really yeah, in it for the music. music. Not for the yeah. f- they were really into the music. They really wanted to create special music because they knew they were good. But even structurally, even like melodic structures and song structures, mm-hmm. you know, we've we you guys have said they were they were definitely very decisively pop. They they didn't seem and may, maybe this goes back to what we were saying about pop back then didn't you know didn't have to sort of detract from the genre from which it came right um, but but they never seemed inauthentic they never seemed that they were pretending or that they were diluting no that they were watering it down or making it more digestible for the main public 
Like there's nothing there's nothing diluted about walking on the moon. No, right, there, there's not. Yeah. But at the same time, if you if, if 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 we're associating it with reggae music, they wanted to not dilute it, but present reggae in a form to a larger audience that was not black. Agreed. Now, now I'm looking at I'm looking at this question about are they the only group to to have been able to do that? The authenticity and the merging of styles, the the, the two clear and diverse styles. Mm. So let me let me throw a group out there. Dave Matthews Band. Dave Matthews Band trots out every summer, and every, and they do only stadium tours. Right. And they sell out, and the styles of music, mm-hmm. high-level instrumentation, mm-hmm. coupled with pop sensibility lyrics. Right. Is that a conversation that we can say, we can have to say that there is a precedent that the police made that other groups are following and succeeding with? No, because I don't think that, to, to kind of piggyback on what Scoop said a few minutes ago, I don't think these other groups have... Let, have reached that point of because what what the police did was very complicated. You know, mm-hmm. they took these this this complex music. I mean, like John just said, "Walking on the Moon." There's nothing about that song that's muted at all. It's a straight, you know, it's it's straightforward. Uh, what it is, it's ne- there's nothing about it that says, "Okay, we're going to shape this and make this a little bit more digestible um, towards the mainstream." But yet, and still, it's a huge hit. You know, these are songs that um, and they cover the gambit, too. For if you, I would have never guessed they would have came out with every breath you take, you know, right. based on never. their previous work. Right. I would have never saw that coming. Right. Um, and I don't think these other groups who have tried this have that level of sophistication that, they, that these three guys were able to accomplish. And at the time, these are three. This isn't a five or six piece band. These are three guys, you know, bass, guitar, drums. Very simple. Keyboards, two thrown in there. But I don't think these other groups have that level of genius, if you will, if we can use that word. Even lyrically, let's take Every Breath You Take as an example. I mean, that's a stalker's anthem, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every breath you take, yeah. I'll be watching you. Oh, can't you see you belong to me? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. And he makes it sound beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's credit to Sting as a songwriter. Though. He's, he's a, he was a phenomenal songwriter, especially for that group. You know, but like we said, Stuart driving the group. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those perfect storms, really, if you really look at it. And I go, it goes to what Isaac's saying. It was very complicated what they did, but they made it seem easy, but it was easy to them because they were also focused on, we'll take the popularity, but we still want to be looked at and still create great music. At the end of the day, this is what we'll do. And because it was three of them, because if you really get to, if, get to know who they are, there's no reason for all of them to be friends. No, you talk about three totally different no, individuals. Right? No, and in the last two, at least the last three tours that they did when they were together, Stewart and Sting did not, not get like each they other hate. at all. Stewart had <laughs> drum heads yeah. with with profanity written on each drum head directed at Sting. So yeah. it was like the the angrier he was at Sting, the better he played. And but and Andy's <laughs> totally different than both of them. He's mm-hmm. like real to they they're three different personalities bought into one, but that adds to the complexity. That's why they were able to do what they did. Right, right, right. right. And you won't find that art you don't build acts like that anymore. Acts right. get built because of friendship and we get along. We had the same, you know, we look at things the same way. Our ideology musically is the same way. No, this right. is I st- you can't tell me what made them get together, except they appreciated each other for what they did and just say, we'll stomach each other to get this done. And you won't find that anymore. To back up your point, you just said about them being completely different. And I didn't know this until I did research before this show. Uh, Sting, he kind of embodied that even within himself. He was a teacher, a school teacher, or whatever, right. before, you know, joining the band, mm-hmm. um, which explains a lot of his the literary aspect of his work. But he was also a ditch digger. 
you know, at the same time. So here's a dude, very blue collar and mm-hmm. very literary at the same time. If you look at their music, it's highly intellectualized, mm-hmm. you know, yes. highly intellectualized, mm-hmm. but you can jam to it. You can dance to that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can, it, it works on all different levels. And goes, well, it, it, like, it goes to what Isaac, you've always said about how um, people in London, how white musicians in London appreciate black music more than we do here, black people do in America. Oh yeah. And, and if yeah, you yeah, look yeah. at Sting specifically, you know, you look at the influences that kind of, control what they were doing musically with the police. Add that to the when Sting left. And if you look at his bands now, as opposed to the bands when he first went solo, he doesn't have any black folks in his bands anymore right now. Back when he first started off, Branford, Branford, Daryl on the bass. Yeah, Daryl Jones. He worked yeah, with yeah. mostly jazz. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He famously, you know, quote unquote, stole Miles Davis's bass player, Daryl DeMunch Jones. Who's from Chicago. Who now plays for the Rolling Stones. Live right on 88th and Dorchester. <laughs> scoop, with, <laughs> scoop went by his house. Wow. <laughs> Every breath you. <laughs> <laughs> but let me close this out by saying... But wait, before uh, Arthur, before we close it out, we could watch performances of, uh, of the police in the late 70s and early 80s. It would be really interesting to see the makeup of the audience whether you had mm. you had the punks and whether you had the reggae heads, it would be really interesting. And I wonder if if there's a distinction, if there's a divergence amongst audience members, I wonder if you see that same distinction reflected in your examples, the Dave Matthews band. My feeling is that you would not. This is post, you know, police are post-British invasion. Now, let me ask you, though, is were the police the, the British invasion into black America? Mm, mm. No, nah, I... I think that was done ahead of time. I think they. Who was that? Yeah, who did it before them? I, I'm with Isaac. That's I can't David think Bowie. of someone that. Yeah, I was, that. I was. That's. I was about to say David Rod Bowie? Stewart. David, I don't know. I don't. I think, was about to say think, Rod Stewart. Well, if, 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 no. if we're really honest, it's the Rolling Stone. In if we're really America? honest, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Scoop was the only one alive. That's true. <laughs> so if he says it, we gotta roll with him. All right, round table. I called it. The now iconic artist that you were down for from day one before anybody else had even heard of him. And you tried to tell people, you tried to put them on, but they would not listen to you. You want to go first, Scoop? I will. Yeah, I guess I will. And it's it's a it's a, a answer that Isaac is going to love. But, but, oh, man, I hope you're not going to call out mine. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Mine is Jill Scott. Mm. See, I was I was lucky enough. I to can be testify working. to that. Huh? I, I can testify to that. You did, you did. Thank I you. Can testify. To yeah, because I you you the one that put me up on it. Yeah, because I happen to know Steve McKeever, who ran Hidden Beach Records, is from Chicago, mm. and I was the editor at XXL at the time. And Michael Jordan, if people don't remember, was the, one of the original investors in Hidden Beach Records. Mm-hmm. So through those connections, I was able to hear Jill Scott way before anybody else. Because Steve McKeever, he built the whole label off of her. So he was telling me about her real early. And right around the time, I think Isaac and I probably just met. And I was like, yo, this girl is going, you know, they got one. They got the one. First time I heard, hmm. The first time I heard her was at, the basement at of my one house. of the parties. <laughs> or no, it was close. One of the parties or whatever at the Jackson crib. I was out on, it was, a, you know, the, the, the old crib. I was in the back on the, uh, on the patio. And I heard, I was like, what the hell is that? And you had told me about her, but I hadn't listened to right. her. And so then I was like, and you were like, that's what, that's, you know, Jill Scott. That's what I've been telling you about. And I was like, wow. And fell in love immediately. Yeah. So I claim that, but the, but the one that trumps that, I would say Jill Scott, but to me, the one I called was Teddy Riley. 
and I called Teddy Riley because I used to read Dance Music Report magazine, mm-hmm. right? And back in 1985, Dance Music Report, in their rap section where Nelson George used to write, mm-hmm. all right, they had a picture of these cats in this apartment, all right? And it was Slick Rick, Dougie Fresh, and a 16-year-old cat on the piano named Teddy Riley who had produced this song called The Show. Mm-hmm. Everybody was on Slick and Dougie. Right. I was like, that's a kid who produced that. Right. I was telling everybody, that dude's going to be that dude. That kid is going to be that dude. I'm, and Teddy Rod and I, when I did the interview with him, we talked about it. He said, you remember? I said, dude, I'm one of the few people that know that you did that record from a picture. And I've been talking about Teddy and on Teddy, knowing he was going to be that dude from mm-hmm. the day. So over Jill Scott, the one I called is Teddy Riley, like 16 years old called Teddy Riley. All right. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I'll go next. I call it Public Enemy. Whoa! Oh, what? Once again, my this question. This is verifiable. I got people you get can call behind this. I look. I, I, I got a witness <laughs> on mine. We need a witness for that. I got a witness on mine. I'll give you his number. Yeah, yeah. I need that, and I need to call him before you call him. Jahan, do you remember Sky Magazine? Of course, of course. Okay, their second issue had Janet on the cover oh, yeah. in the summer of 1987. And in their notes section, when you know, when you flip in five, ten pages into it, there was this article, short half-page article, about this group called Public Enemy. And it was like the picture where they're like in the subway or something like that. And the last line of the article was, if you like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, you will love Public Enemy. And the next day, I went to Leopold's in Berkeley and bought Yo Bum Rush the show. And put everybody I knew <laughs> on it. Told my friends, one in particular, but I said, I'm like, look, these dudes are crazy. These dudes are crazy. He's like, nah, 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 nah. I went to Chicago for the summer, came back in the fall, Nation came out. Mm-hmm. This dude was on me. Of like, course. Have you heard these people? <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine was, he, he was, he did become iconic. But it lasted for like five minutes, um, and it was Paris. In I think it was nineteen ninety, might have been ninety one. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was from California, so she had went back to visit some of her family. Came back with this single, um, and I, the artwork is what caught me caught my attention first because I believe it was like a picture of Uncle Sam with his eyes like redded out or something. It looked very demonic. Um, I was like, what the hell is this? So listen to it. And it was and the, also the title, you know, made me that underneath the picture of Uncle Sam, it said, the devil made me do it. And I'm like, what, you know, what is this? Listen to it. And it's this cat who reminded me so much of Rakim, but was spitting like public enemy. Told everybody about it. Um, this was my man. You know what I'm saying? This is my dude. And this was previously my dude was D.O.C. So I needed a new dude. This is my, this is my I thought that's dude. who you were about to say. I thought you were going to say DOC. I did. I did. The, you know, we talked about him so much before in the show, but I did. You know, DOC was somebody I just, you know, I jumped on immediately. The reason I say it became iconic for five minutes was that there was this huge wait in between Devil Made Me Do It when I was telling everybody about him and his next album, which was Sleeping With The Enemy. And the first song that kind of got leaked from Sleeping With The Enemy and the reason that it was such a huge wait for this album to come out was Bush Killer where he basically, you know, uh, broke down the assassination of the sitting president at the time, the first first George Bush. So 
all of a sudden he's in Time magazine. You know what I'm saying? He's 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 famous. You know what I'm saying? This is this is a, a virtually an underground artist. You know, he had he had gotten some play, but he's really underground at this time. But all of a sudden this this song gets leaked, all this controversy starts, and for a moment in time, he became, you know, the man, the center of attention. And I remember going to the record store uh, up on campus, uh, up on High Street in Columbus, Ohio, going to the record store almost every week, every other week, you know, harassing the owner, you know, is this album out yet? You know, sleeping with the enemy, sleeping with the enemy. Finally came out, and Scoop can attest to this, one of the best albums that came out of that era. Really underrated album. Great, great, great album. But I remember at that point in time, even before Sleeping with the Enemy, I was the first person to be like in my, you know, my crew of the people that I knew who even heard of this dude and then, you know, told everybody about him. Uh, and I think, you know, just like with Arthur with It Takes Nation, I think once Sleep with the Enemy came out, I was kind of validated after that. No, but I think he became I think he became iconic because if y'all remember, I forgot who in whose room they had a, a, a Paris poster uh, on the different world the show. Somebody had a Paris poster in their bedroom, in their dorm room. Oh, really? On a different world. It must world. have been, a, it had to be a, a Cree Summer, maybe? It may have been Cree Summer. It may have been. But that, to me, when you get that, that's iconic status. You know what I'm saying? He he produced a lot of his own material as produced well, right? All, <laughs> he produced all his own material. Dude, his, his, his ability stuff. to find bass lines for samples was amazing. Yeah. The ba- oh, yeah. Oh, it, and the, but, guitar, oh, the guitar solo in, uh, on Sleeping With The Enemy, the extended version. Yeah, 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 Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. But he, he, that's, he brought instrumentation, charted out, you know, sheet music mm-hmm. instrumentation. One of my favorites of his was from a musical standpoint, mm. Grilla Funk. He, you know, he had a, he had a second career as a investment banker yeah exactly i mean i interviewed him for uh agenda. the agenda mm-hmm. yeah and he talked about that so you know he is he was making money off of the uh the stock the stock market. very intelligent brother very intelligent very anti-corporation um very i mean just just an incredible person to talk to but again yeah sleeping with the enemy i, I love gorilla funk but to me when you talk about instrumentation and what he did behind the board sleeping the enemy is the epitome of that from coffee donuts and death all the way through that, like I said, that extended cut. It was unbelievable. Okay. Here it comes. <laughs> this will be interesting. Yes. John will be like, I call and we will be like, who? <laughs> right. well, that, well, that's the problem because Isaac and I were talking about this um, in the last couple of days and he was like, well, what kind of, who's your idea? And I said, okay, well, my idea is going to be, you know, Bobby Rossavilla. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what? Yeah, you win. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Well, Tony LeMann. And he's like, what? And I'm like, oh, okay, low key. He's like, what? And he quoted Scoop as usual. It's got to be someone who's more, more than five people have listened to. <laughs> it's got to be someone who has blown up. And in order to blow up, more than five people have to listen to it. So this has been very, very hard. Very, very hard for me because I can't really think of that many people I like who went and blew up. So I actually don't you can't have... even You can't even call, you can't call like, you know, flying low. You weren't on him? I mean, has he blown up, really? He, no, that's what I was about to say. Why, instead of choosing one that has blown up, who do you think is going? Because I can think of a couple that you think are going to blow up. All right, up. well, I'll say this. The one that springs to mind for me is Chris Dave. Mm-hmm. Drummer, young okay. young drummer from, okay. from Houston. Okay. Um, now, I first noticed him as Mint Condition's touring drummer. Mm. He never made the cover art because the in-house drummer the mint condition was Stokely Williams. Is Stokely Williams. Still is. So Chris Dave, uh, he was a band major. And he um, 
he had a groove. It was like, um, in his words, something that didn't even make sense. It was basically, you know, violin, drums, and trumpet or something. <laughs> you know, there was a showcase at the university and they're playing. And I think Jimmy Jam, I think, came up to him afterwards and said, let me get your telephone number. And I'm, I'm, I, might, I might give you a call a little later. And a few months later, he called him and said, look, I've got this band. They're on our label, Perspective. And I'm in condition. And, but the conundrum is that the lead vocalist is also the drummer, which makes it very, very difficult from a live performance perspective. So we need a drummer to, to step in. So um, they offered Chris the job and he took it. Mm. Never looked back. The first gig he took away from Mink Edition was playing for Kenny Garrett. And that was on Kenny Garrett's Simply Said album. And then he followed that up again. His second release with Kenny Garrett uh, was on the Happy People album. And that Happy People is where you start to hear the Chris Dave of today coming out, developing his own style. I urge every single person to go and get that album, Happy People. Beautiful cover art, pink cover art, beautiful, beautiful cover art. And that album was actually recorded on 9-11. And um, they, they, were, they were saying how basically it was insane. They were watching everything on TV and then they would go and record and they're watching it more on TV and they'd go and record. Bobby Hutchison was part of that band. And you were telling, in true genre fashion, you were telling everybody about this guy. Oh, everybody, right. everybody. And then I heard him with... Michelle Andego Cello as part of her spirit music Jumia and then he had his own group from Houston called The Foundation which was kind of like a roots meets mint condition kind of vibe you know and then Robert Glasper's band composition with them you know arguably he was that guy in the band people went for you know Glasper wherever they went for everybody but Chris was the one they came away thinking I mean you know mind blowing he, he was the jacko of, of, of that incarnation and uh, and now he's got his latest uh, his latest band, which is his first. Oh, and he played with D'Angelo last year, the year before. Now he's got his own band called the Drumheads. They had a mixtape out, which again I urge everybody to listen to. Just incredible, incredible. And you know, you talk about someone blowing up. Well, here's how I'll define blowing up: who's elevating the game to the point that it is not the same after they've played. It is not the same after they've shown up. And you know, it is is very very difficult for us with this wealth of music behind us to say, you know, well, who's the next Jacko? Who's the next Tony Williams? Who's the next, you know, Bobby Hutchison? And, you know, very, very often, despite the proficiency of musicians, even in a genre like jazz um, or any kind of black American music, it's very, very difficult for us to pinpoint that. But Chris Dave, to me, 100%, he's, he's one of those people. He's one of the people that we'll be talking about in the same vein as Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, etc. I mean, just, just landmark. So, that's that's my one. And I, I think we've, you know, had different definitions of blowing up. I think I've disagreed with you before on like what defines, but I, I, I absolutely believe Chris Dave has blown up. And I think that I nominate Jahan as winning this round table <laughs> oh, yeah. for that reason, because I think Chris blew up, but also because the rest of us heard our cats on record. He was on them before when dude was on tour. You know what I'm saying? Before he was before recorded. he recorded, right. Yeah, before right. he was recorded. So that's that's why I give him this round table. Wow. Well, I can say this about Jahan is that even if you <laughs> You did win that one, but even without going Chris Dave, I could say that, you know, you could have, for me, if, if you just use me as a sample, seriously, like if, I, if I'm the guy that he told early, you know, the people that you have hit me to, the two that stand <laughs> out in my mind that, you know, were Frank McCone. You told me about Frank McCone oh. a long, yeah, long, yeah, yeah. long. I was going to choose him. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So you could have called that, or you could have called Alchemist. Mm. Mm. 
Because you told me. <laughs> you don't even, you don't even know. Because. You know. Hey, Scoop, the yes. reason he don't remember these things is because every other day, the brother's <laughs> like, have you heard a so-and-so? Right. You, I, dude, since I've been in London, it's been at least 10 different artists <laughs> that I have to stop doing what I'm doing right now. Listen to this cat. He's the greatest What it fill in the blank. He's going to do this. That's why he can't remember because he does this right. all the time. <laughs> just, just, just last week, I told Getty from um, uh, Potholes in my blog, I was like, man, mm-hmm. you got to check out the internets. And Jahan, like five minutes later, is like, I've been, I told you guys about them months ago. <laughs> right, that's what, he gets indignant well, that, with it. Like, yo, I dropped that song I'm six years connected. ago. It's like, dude, they weren't even out six years ago. What are you talking about? I hate to say, I told you so, though you deserve it. Because you know you left me crying. This has been episode 23 of the Music Snobs Podcast. We're online at themusicsnobs.com. Also, the entire library is streaming on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash themusicsnobs. Our Twitter handle, Total Music Snobs. And we will be updating our episode guide on uh, Flipboard. You know, Flipboard magazine. Uh, open up your Flipboard app on your mobile phone or your tablet. Um, iOS, Android, and Windows phone compatibility. And search for the Music Snobs. And you can subscribe to the show in iTunes if you'd be so kind as to leave a review. Uh, and give us a rating. Thank you.